welcome to the Rainsville Educational Podcast. This podcast is used to help train and equip believers to become disciple makers to serve God's kingdom through the local church. Enjoy this next session as we talk about this week's spiritual rep. Welcome back to another week here on The Rep. I hope this podcast finds you on a relaxing afternoon jog, as I certainly know that it will for some, or perhaps on a quiet drive to work or just some other good place in life. And Now, I can't waste any time with formalities today. We have a momentous topic to attempt to provide a correct definition for. Uh, that is the umbrella term that is none other than the first letter in that infamous theological acronym, TULIP. What is total depravity? So here's how I want to present this term. First, I want to tell you what it doesn't mean, because that's always helpful. Secondly, I want to tell you what it does mean, at least historically, and lastly, show you how the scriptures consistently and collectively teach this idea. And so here we go. What is total depravity? A lot of people, I think, get this term wrong by thinking that total depravity is just a fancy way of saying that people are just really, really sinful. As in, as sinful as they could possibly be. While I understand what people are getting at when they're using that type of terminology, it is worth pointing out that people really are not as sinful as they could be. Uh, we can all think of ways in which God, whether through people, events, or tragedies in our life, has stayed us in our sinful tracks, not permitting us to go any further. This really, I think, ties into a biblical view of the common grace of God, which is another way of saying that God restrains man's sinfulness so that he or she does not reach the full potential of sin in this life. You know, that little inner voice that grinds against our sinful desires, we call it a conscience. Paul talks about it in Romans 2, saying that God has functionally embedded that into all humanity. He writes this in Romans 2, 14-15, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts. Either accuse or even excuse them. So I don't think it is consistent with the Bible to say that total depravity means that people are just as sinful as they can be. We could all be worse sinners. Neither is it sufficient to say that people are just really, really sinful. As true as that statement may be, I think the scriptures go further than this. The aim of scripture is not to show you the simple severity of your sin, but to show you the complete corruption caused by it. But what do I mean by completeness? I think that's the key word there in understanding total depravity. I simply mean that everything about myself, you, and every other human being is sinful. Think of it this way. Stains at first are but resting on the surface. 
That's why when you spill something on a fabric, dry cleaners will tell you to deal with the stain immediately. Because over time, that stain penetrates deeper and deeper into the fabric, ultimately changing the very color of the fabric itself. You can't scrub the surface and remove that type of stain. You can cut it out and remove it, but you can't muscle it out. That's kind of how sin is. Like a long left untreated stain that has penetrated to the very core of our humanity, down to the very marrow, affecting every strand of DNA as it has corrupted completely our human nature. What this means is that depravity then isn't just a term to describe sinful actions or the severity of them, but to describe the thoroughness of sinfulness, how it affects our desires, how it affects our thoughts, our dreams, our ambitions, and even our hopes. You see, total depravity means that sin, like a deep, penetrating stain, has corrupted our actions, our minds, our hearts, and yes, even our will. So here's the biggest question that I have to answer today then. If I've told you what it doesn't mean, and then told you historically a, a, a snapshot of what it does mean, here's the biggest question. Does the Bible teach that? I don't give a rip about what depravity means if the Bible doesn't teach it. That's what matters. And so, let us consider a few interesting passages of Scripture. The first is from the Old Testament. It's a passage that the Bible uses to describe sin's devastating effects on the human heart, which, you should know, in the Hebrew is imagery for the innermost seat of a person. It's, it's the stuff that makes you you. <laughs> It's your will, as in what you desire, you long for, what you want. That's your heart in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the meaning of it. The part of you that makes decisions about what you love, about what you like, about what you hate. It's that innermost part of you that makes you, you. That's the image of heart in the Hebrew mind. Now, what does the Old Testament say about this part of our humanity? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a potent question from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9, for the advocates of following your heart to make decisions. That's terrible advice, according to Jeremiah it doesn't take a Ph.D. to figure out why Jeremiah is saying what he does. How many times have our desires and wishes led us into destructive and devilish places and behaviors? You don't need a Ph.D. for that. The school of life will teach you that much. It's the reason why unregenerate sinners, time after time, willingly make decisions that is totally or totally contrary to glorifying God and obeying His Word. Their sinful heart hates the thought of glorifying God. It hates the thought of obedience to God's Word. Their sinful will will not permit it. Their desires are deceitful to them. The human heart is desperately sick. Don't trust it. 
But not only does the Bible teach us that sin has infected our desires, thoughts, and affections, a.k.a. our heart, but it has also stuffed us into a coffin. Indeed, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I think I said this last week, but for good measure, what do dead people do when you speak to them? Nothing. What do they do if you pinch them, kick them, slap them? Nothing. The point of Paul using the word dead is for you to see yourself as spiritually unresponsive to any spiritual stimuli. You don't need the right hymn, is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you don't need the right lighting or even the right opportunity. You need a resurrection, and only God can give that. Now, you may be shocked at what I'm saying here somewhat, and, and I admit there was a time where I struggled to accept what Scripture plainly teaches about human sin. But this next passage, for me, is the one the Holy Spirit used to just pull the lid off of the coffin. Paul writes this statement to the church at Rome in describing the guilt and sinfulness of humanity, and it's a passage that has shaken me to my core when I finally came to grips with it. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Unless you think you are the lone exception in all of humanity, then you are considered, in Paul's all-inclusive word, all. I'll never forget seeing that in this text. Could Paul be any more potent here to human pride? Unregenerate sinners did not seek God yesterday. They did not seek Him today, nor will they seek Him tomorrow unless God intervenes in His grace. And think about it. Why do sinners not seek God on their own? Why is Paul saying here in Romans 3, no one understands, no one seeks for God? How can Paul say such a thing? Jeremiah has already told us the answer. Their sinfully sick heart has no desire, not even an inkling of a desire to seek the God the Scriptures reveal. It's not that you don't have a choice, because you do, and you are totally responsible for the choice you make. But it is also equally clear that because of your sinful depravity, your picker, your chooser, is also corrupted. Therefore, because of sin, you are unable and incapable of making the good choice by your own human wisdom. So, 
Do the scriptures teach the total depravity of man? I am persuaded that they absolutely do, and I do not see how a person can reason differently from the plain teachings of Jeremiah and Paul that we've just observed. There are more texts I could show you, and we could explore together, of course, but this episode, as I always say, is not exhaustive. It's a bite-sized podcast meant to hopefully spur you on to, to further studies. But it is sufficient what I've given you here today to show that the Bible does, in fact, teach total depravity. But what should the conclusion of all this be? I mean, that, that we're just in a hopeless, impossible situation as sinners? Yes. Try and sell that to the American contemporary church. We are absolutely in a hopeless, impossible situation in and of ourselves because of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that what is impossible for man is possible with God. It is impossible for us to scrub out this stain that sin has left, but praise God. Because of the salvation of Jesus Christ, we have been purchased out of this sinfulness, out of our depravity. He's not only scrubbed us, he's not only done that, he's taken and cut the old heart out and given us a new heart, responsive and desiring and affectionate towards our gracious God. Could there be a better conclusion? All glory to Christ our Savior. I'll see you next time on the rep. Have a great week. Blessings.